It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. A one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater sure looks strange to me. In 2003, novelty country singer Sheb Woolley succumbed to a year-long battle with leukemia. He was 82. Death did not stop the public from hearing his voice. Later that year, he posthumously appeared in the eventual Best Picture winner and highest-grossing movie of 2003, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. This pattern continued for the rest of the decade. In six of the next seven years, audiences caught a glimpse of Sheb Woolley in the highest-grossing movies of each respective year. History's greatest box office juggernaut, 2009's Avatar, even sampled Woolley. For a man with such an amazing, consistent streak in Hollywood, it is a shame that he is mostly known for that dumb purple people eater song. Surely nobody wishes the purple people eater was their legacy. The titular monster says his job is eating purple people and it sure is fine. Now, the lyric eating purple people and it sure is fine means that instead of being a people eater that is purple, he is an eater of purple people. That distinction ruins the whole song. How does he eat purple people? Those do not exist. He traveled the whole galaxy and never thought to check the Yelp reviews. When that non-idea dries up after one chorus, the song just gives up on the premise. The absurd concept was somehow big enough to climb all the way to number one in 1958. Willie turned that fateful stroke of luck into a fruitful but relatively minor act on the country circuit. His brief fame coincided with an acting stint. On-screen appearances include acclaimed movies like Johnny Guitar and High Noon, or a later cameo in the Gene Hackman-led tale of basketball underdogs, Hoosiers. His most influential movie is only a passing image. The far less remembered Distant Drums subtly resonated over the next seven decades. During one frightening scene, a group of pioneers dare traverse a raging river. They do not all make it. One member of the posse is chewed to bits by a pack of hungry alligators. In his final moment, he gave out one last yelp. That vocal was recorded by Sheb Woolley. There's nothing terribly interesting about it. It sounds like a standard scream. Hollywood producers always looking to trim budgets reuse the sound effect two years later in 1953's The Charge at Feather River. A character named Private Wilhelm is trotting along on his horse when an arrow springs from nowhere and strikes his knee. Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe! The noise earned the nickname, the Wilhelm Scream. The effect became a standard part of filmmakers' repertoire whenever a character fell or was stabbed. By the early 1970s, film obsessors peppered the sound into the work as an end-joke. Future Academy Award-winning sound designer Ben Burtt convinced fellow movie nerd George Lucas to insert the clip in Star Wars during the scene where Luke Skywalker's laser blast shoots a stormtrooper. Other Lucas productions, including every subsequent Star Wars and Indiana Jones movie, popularized the scream as a go-to effect. More than 500 movies have now featured the bleat in some capacity. While you may wish to never hear Purple People Eater again, you have no choice but to hear Shep Bully. The ubiquitous audio's musical legacy is comparatively spare. The closest thing to a mainstream nod is in the music video for Katy Perry's number one gloop of cheesy empowerment, Roar. James Blake name-checked the effect in one of his titles. Out of this limited pool of references, we're going to play one of the few songs to directly sample it into the melody. Here's a 1989 album cut by industrial weirdos, Pop Will Eat Itself. I 
Hi, I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is the judge of all that is good in music, Nate Youngman. This week we are going to talk about two less than reputable people who were responsible for endearing achievements in pop culture. Act 1, War, What Is It Good For? Here is a trivia question for the listeners out there, and you too, Nate. What was the best-selling single of 1966? What one song elbowed out competition in the first year of explosive promise of pop music hit the mainstream? When you think of that decade of musical excellence, what sound dominates your imagination? The charts were importing exciting records at the height of the British invasion, like the 21st best-selling song, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Perhaps you think it was a hippie protest folk like the 10th best-selling song, California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. Or you associate it with the freak-out spastic garage-like rock of the 5th best-selling record, 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. You're gonna drag, 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 96 tears. Come on, let me hear you cry now. 96 tears. Or maybe you bet it was one of the endless line of eternal soul classics that came out of Motown, like the fourth best selling single, Reach Out and I'll Be There by the Four Tops. If you reasonably guessed anything remotely as good as those iconic songs, you would be wrong. While those songs remain transcendent gems, they could not quite match the success of a certain five-week 1966 chart topper. Silver wings upon their chest These are men, America's best One hundred men We'll test today, but only three when the Green Beret. That is Ballad of the Green Berets, recorded by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. That stiff, faux drum roll propelled what is almost by any measure the worst number one song ever. That is both a musical and a moral opinion of both of ours. Many bad people have made great music, including John Phillips, whose California Dreaming we just played, Barry Sadler is a rare case of a bad man who made bad music. His legacy is weirder than that. The people involved and the song's unintended consequences are a mixed bag of greatness, tragedy, and garbage. As strictly music, the Battle of the Green Berets is not good. The tune is a dull reworking of the British song The Butcher's Boy. The Butcher's Boy is a morbid song about a lover that kills herself about an unrequited love. To show that she was scorned, she asked that a dead turtle dove be placed over her heart in the coffin. And I'm not sure why a turtle dove. Because <laughs> well, he can't be buried for a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Battle of the Green Berets is a similar morose tale. The melody is steamrolled over into a lifeless shuffle. Sadler delivers a monotone story where a soldier aspires to serve the special forces. 
The listener learns nothing about him other than he wishes his child join the same organization responsible for his own death. Stoic Sadler never questions, condemns, or praises the action. It just plods along. It was released just as the younger generation began questioning the human cost of the Vietnam War. A song celebrating death was a clear shot in a cultural war. The song was not bought to be listened to, but to silence others. Its popularity prevented some of the best artists of one of the greatest artistic moments in American history from getting deserved triumphs. In its first week at number one, the Battle of the Green Berets knocked a certified jam off the top spot. Nancy Sinatra's legitimately transgressive, These Boots Are Made For Walking. These boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. Another proactive song, the Rolling Stones' 19th Nervous Breakdown, stalled at number two. These problems seem minor in comparison to the personnel behind the song. Sadler was born in Carlsbad, New Mexico. He constantly got into minor trouble with the law as a teenager. After his junior year in high school, he quit and joined the Air Force. Sadler re-enlisted in the Army in August 1962. He completed the RUS Green Beret medical training and served in Vietnam from late December 64 to late May 65. His tour came to an end when he fell on a feces-covered punji stick. The feces caused an infection to set in. Sadler nearly had to have his leg amputated. He was medically evacuated to the Philippines for treatment. During his recuperation, he sang for the other wounded soldiers in the hospital, both there and at Fort Bragg, where he completed his recovery. During this time, Sadler met Robert Lowell Moore, whose pen name was Robin Moore. As Robin Moore, he wrote the novel The Green Berets. The best-selling book was a cultural phenomenon. Though a work of fiction, Moore framed the collection of nine stories as truthful. The military was quick to denounce it. The tales glamorize sexual assault, assassinating political officials who disagree with the war, and relies on defamatory racial stereotypes. Most controversially, the book made the real villains the American soldiers who abide by the rules of war. This is a far cry from the medical support system the Green Berets were established to serve as. Sadler had worked out an outline for his song. He asked Moore to call down the 12 verses into a palatable single. Moore bought Sadler a guitar, added a few words, and suggested the title. One day, a TV news crew filmed Sadler singing the Battle of the Green Berets. When the footage aired, the song became an instant sensation. As the song climbed the charts, the Army took Sadler off his regular duty at Fort Bragg and sent him on a 15-month nationwide tour to promote the song. Sadler hated doing it. He attempted to parlay the song into a future career flamed out. By 1973, he had burned through all his royalties. In a last effort at stardom, he moved his family to Nashville. That move did not work out. Living in Nashville at the time was songwriter Lee Emerson Bellamy, who managed country legends George Jones and Marty Robbins. He wrote Marty Robbins' 1962 country chart topper, Ruby Ann. But I could see he was ashamed of me when he talked in his wealth and fame. Ruby Ann took the hand of his poor, poor man, ain't true love a funny thing. Bellamy was also physically abusive to his girlfriend Darlene Sharp, including busting her leg muscle with a piece of firewood and threatening to pull her eyes out. Sharp fled Emerson to find peace. She eventually started dating Sadler. Bellamy continued his pattern of violence outside of the relationship. 
Over a month, he made a series of harassing telephone calls to Sadler and had one violent confrontation in Nashville Barb's parking lot. He even called the Green Berets sissies. Ooh. <laughs> On December 1st, 1978, he was either invited to Sharp's apartment complex or showed up unprompted. While Bellamy knocked on the door, Sadler exited through the side. On seeing Sadler, Bellamy ran to his van. A glint of metal flashed. Sadler says he thought it was a gun. He fired off a shot that hit Bellamy between the eyes. Bellamy died several hours later. It turned out that Bellamy was unarmed, however. He was merely grabbing his keys. According to court reports, Sadler then planted a handgun in Bellamy's van, presumably to strengthen his claim of self-defense. Sadler pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. He only served 28 days in jail. Sadler never showed remorse for getting away with murder. He only bragged about being a crack shot. Sadler's final chapter of his life took him to Central America. Following service as a clandestine mercenary, he started training the Contras, the guerrilla military force that attempted to overthrow the socialist Sandista Nicaraguan government. The Contras engaged in extensive, gruesome terrorism where more than 30,000 Nicaraguan citizens were killed. Sadler's life ends in a dark irony. On September 7, 1988, Sadler visited Guatemala City. He hired a taxi to take him to his mountain ranch home. As the car pulled to a red light, a gun went off. Sadler slumped down in the back seat with a gunshot wound to the head. There is a little agreement over who pulled the trigger. Family members suggested it was a robbery or an assassination. Witnesses and the police said Sadler accidentally shot himself. Medical authorities suggested that the wound was inconsistent with the handgun story. The 380 Beretta Sadler carried with him would have left a vastly larger hole than revealed in the hospital. No matter the culprit, the wound eventually killed Sadler. Although he survived the gunshot, Sadler suffered severe brain damage. He remained in the hospital bed for the rest of his life except for a weird window where two former Green Berets kidnapped him for a week. Sadler died of heart failure on November 5, 1989. He had just turned 49 four days before. Robin Moore, the co-writer of The Battle of the Green Berets and the book The Green Berets, was not that good himself. His nonfiction works were absurd. He wrote books promoting conspiracies that Lyndon Johnson ordered the Kennedy assassination, Franklin Roosevelt allowed the Pearl Harbor attack to happen, and that the government is holding aliens at Area 51. His most scandalous text, The Hunt for Bin Laden, Task Force Dagger, was co-written with J.K. Adema. Adema was a convicted fraudster who made up his impossible exploits of fighting the Taliban. All this would have been great for QAnon if they'd been around then. In 1986, Moore pleaded guilty to setting up fraudulent literary tax shelters. The investigation of those shelters in Jamaica led to the uncovering of a major scandal involving the ad agency Young and Rubicon and bribery of Jamaican tourist officials. The government charged Moore with publishing books and selling rights to promoters and investors at inflated prices based on arbitrary and unrealistic values. Sadler and Moore were disreputable people. What good could they possibly have done? Moore had mixed legacy as an author. No matter the schlock he put out, he will always be the man who wrote the book, The French Connection. The book was adapted into the 1971 Best Picture winner of the same name. The five-time Academy Award winner is considered a classic. It appeared on both the versions of American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest films ever made and is enshrined in the National Film Registry. The fast-paced police drama followed detectives played by Gene Hackman and his partner played by Roy Schneider as they uncover a secret French drug kingpin smuggling heroin from Europe. Best captured in the exhilarating high-speed car chase where Hackman is tailing an elevated train, the nightmarish realism set a new era of gritty procedurals. Their tremendous success secured William Freakin the right to make any movie he wanted. His next movie is his masterpiece, The Exorcist. 
Perhaps most interestingly, the movie's protagonist, Detective Eddie Popeye Doyle, became the namesake of Alvin C. Copeland's line of Louisiana fried chicken restaurants, Popeye's. Popeye's would go on to be the greatest achievement in human history. And that is absolutely correct, sir. I, I cannot deny that for one second. Despite their near anonymity today, Doug Brown and the Omens are the most consequential group inspired by Barry Sadler's hit. In 1964, the Omens recruited a new keyboardist. He persuaded the band to release a parody song called The Ballad of the Yellow Beret. Yellow streaks up and down their spines Men who gladly stay behind They won't fight for the USA Billed under the one-off name The Beach Bums, the song was penned under the pseudonym D. Dodger, a play on Draft Dodger. The song condemns anti-war protesters as leftist cowards who react to fear by peeing their pants. The novelty record gained regional attraction around Michigan. Sadler and his label RCA caught wind of the song and threatened a potential lawsuit. The threat forced the record label to withdraw the song from the market. The legal trouble caused the band to dissolve shortly thereafter. The man who wrote the Battle of the Yellow Berets decided to release his first solo single. His name was Bob Seeger. Working on a night moves Trying to make some front page driving news Working on a night moves Seeger would go on to be a perennial classic rocker, much to the chagrin of both off-key hosts. Seeger would try to atone for his sophomoric take on the war with the far superior anti-Vietnam psych rocker, 2 plus 2 equals. Yes, it's true I am a young man, but I'm old enough to kill. I don't want to kill nobody, but I must if you so will. The single's baseline will be forever remembered when the White Stripes interpolated it into their 2003 hit, Seven Nation Army. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, Dad, that was kind of a downer episode. There's not a lot of laughs about the Vietnam War. Let's tell a bit lighter tale in my act, Act 2, Cain and Unable. The snippet you just heard was the intermezzo from the opera Fedor by Umberto Giordano. I do not know enough about opera to say how good that was. I wish I was lucky, or rather unlucky enough, to hear how Ghana Vasca sang it. Based on the reports of the time, Fedor was the worst performance of one of the worst opera stars to ever take the stage. Contemporary reviews called it 1918 performance in Havana completely off. The audience pelting her with rotten tomatoes. Whenever she appeared, they would shout and howl just to drown out her voice. Security was worried that the unruly mass was about to storm the stage. Her reputation as an awful singer was near universal. On the eve of the 1920 production of Zaza, the conductor refused to put on a show if he had to listen to her again. Her own music teacher described her voice as like 5 million pigs. Sadly, no recording captured what that possibly sounded like. While I'll never personally know if she lacked musical talent, I can say for certain she had an incredible knack for finding the most outlandish spouse in the world. Much of her story surrounds the increasingly bizarre assortment of men she married. 
However, she had her own fascinating tale. Along the way, that talent changed history. Born in 1887 to a Polish couple living in modern-day Belarus, Ganavaska, Jinta becoming a star early in childhood. A radiant beauty, she knew that she could entice men to help make that dream a reality. She moved to St. Petersburg at 19 to find a potential suitor. At one royal ball, the soon-to-be-assassinated Tsar Nicholas II called her the most beautiful woman in the room. Now, this was a man who was already married. I bet it hurt his wife's feelings. <laughs> The approval of the Tsar turned her into a celebrity in certain quarters. Hobnobbing among the royal families, she encountered Akady Dayangwan, a Russian officer and baron. The two quickly fell for each other, and nearly quickly as fell out. The marriage resolved in two years. With the ongoing threat of World War I and the brewing communist resentment, Ghana packed her bags for New York. That was a good choice. By the time she landed, her first husband had already been shot in battle. Desperately trying to raise an income, she took up a residency at a local cabaret. The stress of nightly performances strained her voice. To alleviate throat problems, she visited Dr. Joseph Frankel. Ten days later, they married. Until he died, distraught over the loss, Vasca moved to Paris. On board the ship, the Aquatina, she met Alexander Cochran, the richest bachelor in the world. Apparently, over the single life, he proposed to her the day they met. The marriage lasted just two years. At this point, I'm listening intently, and I can't keep up with how many people she's been married to. Vasca moved on pretty fast. A few months later, she married Harold Fowler McCormick. For inventing the Industrial Reaper, Cyrus McCormick earned the moniker the father of modern agriculture. He should have stuck to grain. He had less luck as a biological father. His son Harold inherited the fortune from Industrial Harvester, the then world's largest producer of farm equipment. When he married Vasca, he paid a doctor to insert baboon testicles into his scrotum. To increase marital virility, testicular glandular implants were all the fad in 1920 Chicago. For some reason, this did not come up in the Bardo musical. While in Paris, McCormick doubled down and got a second monkey testicle grafted. V-applications were fairly common. Some patients could get up to 30 glands. To keep up with demand, a rash of organ thefts castrated random strangers all around Chicago. Doctors banned the contraband testicles out of fear that the organs might now carry the trait of the previous owner, who would be upset that they were unwillingly castrated. We're going to Chicago in a few weeks. I'm going to watch myself. Be it the placebo effect or a legitimate bona fide science, <laughs> the operation allegedly worked. It ruined him, though. The public scorn prompted Harold to resign from presidency of International Harvester. Despite having no income, Harold drained his family fortune on a newlywed operatic pipe dream. He bought Vasca a personal venue in both Paris and Chicago. They were soon divorced. In 1938, she married her fifth husband, the English inventor Harold Grindel Matthews. Lasting only three months, this was her shortest marriage. It's not like she had a long one. It makes sense. The two had very little in common. Vasca found him quite unattractive. Probably didn't help that he also wanted to be a world-ending villain. In a secluded West mountaintop, a mad scientist works on his latest gadget. In his lab coat and black eye patch, he has been nicknamed Dr. Deathray. There's a good reason to think that sounds like something out of a comic book. A key part of comic book lore has drawn upon one of Harry Grindel Matthews' inventions. In December 1930, he debuted a sky projector. The concentrated light could project patterns onto the clouds outside of London. To ring in the holiday spirit, he beamed the image of an angel, a working clock, and the message, Happy Christmas. The publicity stunt inspired another beacon in the sky casting symbols for all to see. Batman's bat signal. Are we going to guess that? Not all of his machines were gimmicky. He patented the aerophone, communicating ground messages to pilots in the air. Though the size of shoebox, this was functionally the first mobile phone ever created. He tried to sell Warner Brothers a camera that could simultaneously record sound to photograph images, paving the way for talkies. The government was most invested in his system to detect submarines as a forerunner to sonar. All of this goodwill ended when he unveiled his death ray, an enormous experimental device that fired a concentrated beam of ultraviolet light. 
He made increasingly dubious claims about his powers. Electrical energy could somehow stop any motor, melt glass, explode gunpowder, or airplanes out of the sky. No army would try to attack someone if they could be vaporized from over four miles away. And the few times he did show it off, he burned a mouse from two feet away and accidentally shot himself in the eye. <laughs> People suspected Matthew's invention was an obvious scam. To debunk its effectiveness, three scientists stood directly in his path. Instead of burning to a pile of ash, the men were left unscathed. Now, I should report, one did sneeze. And anyone who has lived through pollen season knows that that could be a fate worse than death. Dr. Matthews was a punchline, a con man, and probably a genius. His antics about the death ray captivated the public imagination. Pulpy tales like Flash Gordon latched onto the premise of a ray gun. Through cultural permeation, the prop passed down to Star Trek, Doctor Who, and Star Wars. Vasco has tired of science. It was now time to explore the occult. And this time, Vasco's other growing passion was mysticism. Vasco became convinced that she had telepathic powers to communicate with the dead. Believing that she could summon ghosts on command, the stately mansion held seance with Ouija reports. After her tumultuous life, Vasco sought an enlightened teacher. She took spiritual seminars and yoga lessons from her soon-to-be sixth husband, Theos Bernard, known as the White Lama. Bernard was one of the first Westerners to bring Tibetan-style Buddhism to America. He was not strictly the first. His uncle Perry Baker, or Om the Omnipotent, taught similar lessons. His reputation disintegrated when a teenage disciple he kidnapped revealed that he ran an underage magic sex cult. As a result of the backlash, Bernard became the new face of Eastern spiritualism. He convinced a string of wealthy widows to finance his teaching. Vasca spent an estimated $30 million on constructing a 37-acre estate in Montecito. Intended to serve as a training ground for Tibetan lamas, the massive property was known as Tibetland. It immediately failed. Restricted air travel during World War II meant that Bernard could not get any more followers from India and Nepal. The marriage failed as well. Bernard used his divorce to finance a trip to the Himalayas. He had been duped by a supposedly ancient text allegedly discovered by Levi H. Dowling, a pioneer preacher who coined the phrase, the Age of Aquarius. The fraudulent manuscript was merely Dowling's translation of an 1894 novel. The narrative described the hypothetical trip to India Jesus Christ made as a teenager. Bernard believed that if he retraced Jesus' route, he could prove that Christianity was actually rooted in Buddhism instead of Judaism. Somewhere in the Himalayas, Bernard disappeared. His travel companion was eventually recovered, floating down a river with a bullet in his head. Nobody knows how I would have died. So with that heartbreak, Vasca never married again. Her remaining 40 years were spent in relative seclusion. Along with nothing but her fortune, she took up a new hobby. She converted the doomed Tibetland into a spectacular botanical garden called Lotusland. Open to the public upon her death, the sprawling exhibit is one of the most important horticultural collections in the world. Rare and exotic plants grow unique and irreplicable biozones. Her singular vision created one to recognize 10 best gardens in all of the planet. It is not her artistic masterpiece, though. In a roundabout way, she achieved her life's goal. Her singing is remembered. Her story of a fame-hungry but incompetent opera star, popped up by a capricious millionaire, was captured on film and inspired a character in the universally agreed-upon best movie ever made, Citizen Kane. The elevated status is partially due to its incredible influence. Orson Welles' movie impacted the basic language of film. Everything from camera placement, thematic lighting, deep focus, makeup, scoring, and nonlinear narratives were all shaped by Kane. 80 years after its release, the movie still astounds. I legitimately love it. And I think that infatuation stems from what I think is the best character, Susan Alexander Kane. No matter the money Charles Foster Kane throws at her, he cannot resolve her limited range. The objective failure drives him mad. It's a profound scene. The heartbreak is all the more powerful because it drew upon Harold Fowler McCormick's own struggles to turn Ghanavaska into a star. Now, I don't think Citizen Kane is the greatest movie ever made. The only way it could be better is if it was more realistic and added some monkey testicles, laser beams, sex cults, and Batman.
To close it out, here is actress Dorothy Cummingore as Susan Alexander Kane. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Nate, do we have anything to close with? Why, yes, I do, Dad. So far, our definition of great achievements has been limited to other influential pieces of pop culture. For a closing song, let's up the ante. Here's a soldier who is credited with preventing World War III. This is the biggest piece of bull. Go ahead, say it. If you had to guess what wrecking ball of machismo saved humanity, that you might be surprised to learn it was James Blunt. The wispy balladeer behind You're Beautiful, poll conducted by Rolling Stone magazine, ranked it as the seventh most annoying song of all time. Well, I tend to agree with that review. Blunt deserves some respect for saving us from Armageddon. As a cavalry officer in the British Army, Blunt led some of the 30,000 deployed NATO troops to Kosovo. His most daring mission was seizing the Pristina airfield. A 200-strong Russian brigade had captured the strategic position. U.S. General Wesley Clark had little patience to negotiate peace. He issued a direct command to overpower them. Privy to conversations among the high command, Blunt protested the call. It was both militarily unnecessary and had larger political ramifications. An open assault could cause retaliation and trigger a larger global conflict. At the risk of court-martial, the singer-songwriter declined the order. British General Sir Michael Jackson then shared similar fears of international retaliation. Blunt's objection dissipated the potential conflict. After a two-week standoff, an agreement was finally reached. Blunt retired to civilian life. Three years later, he released his star-making album, Back to Bedlam. Due to the inclusion of You're Beautiful, the album was a blockbuster. In England, it became the best-selling album of the 2000s. One track, No Bravery, was written while Blunt was stationed in Kosovo. I'm going to close out with that song. Thank you and goodbye, everybody. Good night. And I see-